I'm Molly O'Connor. And I'm Sarah Connell Sanders. And you're listening to Pop It. This is the podcast for popping questions, popping bottles, and pop culture. Barbara Fields is the new president and CEO of Greater Worcester Community Foundation. The bulk of her career has focused on housing and development in the state of Rhode Island. Barbara served for two decades as the founding executive director of the Rhode Island Office of Local Initiatives and Support Corps. Her work there led to an appointment in the Obama administration as New England Regional Administrator of the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. That is quite the impressive resume, Barbara. Thank you for having us. Oh, thank you for having me. (laughs) I also saw that you went to Tufts and MIT. Are you from Mass originally? No, I always say I did two tours of duty in Boston. I grew up in the suburbs of New York City out on Long Island. Sometimes you can hear that in my accent. Uh, And I was really committed to going to school in the Boston area. I had two older brothers. They did not go to school there, but they had friends, and I knew that it was a college city and that wherever I went, I could probably take advantage of a lot of other great things. And that turned out to be true. I have found, um, I went to Emerson College and we had a a very, very large population of students from like New York and New Jersey and specifically like right around New York City. And I think I always wondered if part of it was the idea that it was almost like the little sister city. And so it was like taking a break from like, you know, the big you, city. Yeah. And like, <laughs> Although I didn't you know. live in the city. I wish I, I had gone back to the city because right I couldn't around. afford it. But yeah, yeah, but you do still. You know, you took the class trip into Broadway shows mm-hmm. or you would go to the United Nations. I probably went to the United Nations, you know, four or five times <laughs> between <laughs> elementary and, and junior high school, we called it then. Yeah. Um, so you do get to see those things. Although I never went to the Statue of Liberty until my son, who's now in college, but when he was two years old. And I laughed because I never went, even though I grew up near there. But there's, you know, you do other things, though. You go to a museum or whatever, so you do have the exposure. Yeah, I think that's pretty common, like the idea of, like, you're not going to be a tourist in your own neighborhood necessarily. And so it's almost, like, cool when you're like, hey, I've never done this before. Mm -hmm. This is why people come here, you know? Well, I was just saying we run a youth philanthropy program called YCI, and I think part of that is exposing young people. They are high school students, both from the city and from the surrounding communities, uh, to things here, right here in their own city, in their own community. And the wide-eyed looks you get at times are terrific. And this year, for the first time, we took them to City Hall to meet with Ed Augustus, the city manager. And I asked the next day what they thought, and Sarah, who runs the program, said they loved it because they heard about Ed, they read about him in the paper or maybe saw him on TV, and he's physically a big guy and he's, you know, doing a big job. And they said, he's kind of just like us. He was born here, he went to school here, he lives in the neighborhood, he went away and worked, but he came back, he works here. And of course, if you know Ed, he's so approachable. So I think it was a win-win. And as I said, we get kids from Grafton and Leicester and Paxton and kids from the city of Worcester schools. And so it really is a program that I've learned about in my time here that I'm excited about. Now, this organization, for as long as I can remember, has been run by Anne Lisi, who is your beloved predecessor. Mm-hmm. 
and it must have been kind of tricky to step into a position. Sometimes I think it's easier to step into a leadership position where the person before you was awful, you know? <laughs> You're like, hey, I'm here to fix this. Actually, um, it was a tremendous opportunity to come to a new place and be a leader right from day one, which is what I was looking for. And I inherited a really solid foundation with an opportunity with the momentum in Worcester to take it into its next chapter and to see if we could increase the impact we're having here. So I saw it as a great opportunity. And as a footnote, my last job before this was four years running Rhode Island Housing, which is the state's housing finance agency. And I took over from a well-respected leader who is a good friend, and he had been there 21 years. So I sort of had the experience of going in where you have a leadership transition of a couple of decades. One of my mentors is Steve Mills, who was the Worcester Public Schools superintendent for years and years. And he left at the end of his career. And when he left, he said he spent an entire year in Acton-Boxborough just with his door open. And he didn't get anything big accomplished in that year because he was so busy listening. He just kept his door open for a whole year, let every teacher and every faculty member come in and talk to him. And he was like, that's how I coasted in. Because like you, he was following in the footsteps of somebody who is beloved. Yeah. So for me, it was both the staff here listening to them, the board of directors who are a wealth of knowledge and information. And then I had to go out and go into the community. Uh, I happened to love that. So I did write a blog post, um, 15 things I learned in 15 weeks. And I think some of my favorite things are that people here are fiercely loyal to their city and their neighborhood. But the funny one is that I drove by every day Coney Island. So one day I said, all right, I'm going to go in there and finally get my Coney Island dog. And I look for a parking spot. I park the car. I get out. I cross the street. Closed Tuesdays. (laughs) I would think closed Monday. So it was really funny. And then I got to finally have one. But I was at the opening uh, of the announcement that the new name would be Woo Sox, which we all sort of guessed. And Uh, Coney Island was there um, giving out hot dogs as part of the celebration, so I was chatting with the owner, and it was great to be able to chat with her and tell her that story and tell her that I uh, drive by and now I know when to stop and when not to. (laughs) Yeah, it's a special place. I think that the Closed on Tuesdays makes it more, like, adds to the, the aura of it, right? Now, what does Greater Worcester Community Foundation do for our beautiful city? And then what are some of the major innovations that you've brought with you? So the foundation is a a way to connect donors and philanthropists to the causes and issues that they care about. And we're here to help them make those connections and understand what is going on in the city, what are the critical issues, and also The thing that I'm trying to add and sort of grow is our role as a civic leader. And I think I've been spending these six months listening because we do have a couple of areas where we're a leader, such as the arts, and we've been working hand-in-hand with the city the last few years. But we can't choose every issue, so I think it's incumbent upon us with our knowledge and our expertise of our staff to select the issues where we would like to be a convener. We can communicate about the issue. And then hopefully we will be able to um, get donors interested uh, in particular issues that they may then contribute to. So I'm still in the exploration stage around innovation uh, and taking a fresh look, but that is one area uh, where I think the, the foundation can connect. 
One big question I always have when people are working in philanthropy is, do you feel like it's more impactful to give $5,000 to 100 organizations or $100,000 to five organizations? What is your approach? The answer to that question is yes. <laughs> and by that, I mean that the size of the gift has to do with the size of the program and the impact. So it could be an organization with a very small budget. Maybe they're in the startup phase and their budget's about $150,000. Then giving them five or $10,000 is a big, uh, a big statement and a commitment to that organization to help them. That same gift to an organization with a $4 million budget is really, you have to say, so what? And what are you doing? So they may need a different type of engagement or investment from you. Although the $4 million organization might need a small amount of money. And the thing I love about this foundation, that in addition to the cycles of funding we have, we also have a fund that we can give out during the year for a lar an organization comes and says, we have this particular need that just came up. Our chief operating officer resigned, or our chief financial officer, and we would like to do a little bit of work with the, with the board and staff to see what we need and then maybe hire a consultant to help us through that hiring process. So that might be a small grant of you know, four or $5,000. So I don't think there is a definitive answer. As I said, the answer is yes. <laughs> you need to do and be open to both types of those uh, investments or grants. It, it is really based on the situation. Um, you had mentioned working in housing and trying to expand housing opportunities for all in Rhode Island previous to coming here to Worcester. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the big takeaways from your experience there that could maybe be applied right in our city? Well, I've had um, a lifelong commitment to community development and housing emerged uh, at a certain point in my career as one of the focuses. And I'm very fond of saying I don't care about housing. And then people go, wait, you run the housing agency, you were at HUD, you were working on this. And I said, well, I like to pause and say, if that's all we do. But I truly believe that the path to opportunity, the path to the future for families, for individuals starts at home. It is the starting point. I don't care about it if that's all we do, but we must do it in order to have people go to school. You said you're both teachers. You want your students to wake up um, somewhere where they've been safe and warm and they can do their homework. For families to go to jobs, for people who are dealing perhaps with substance abuse and they need some programming, they need to live somewhere in order then to go home and, and, and benefit from those um, programs. For seniors uh, to live somewhere safe and that works for their family budget, and then maybe they go out to uh, senior programs in the community. Or someone who is at home volunteering. It all begins at home, and I think housing is the building blocks of communities. You certainly need shops and stores and access to good food and transportation, recreation, uh, schools. Uh, they all are part of the community. And I think what I learned most was that we actually need housing at all price points. We simply don't have enough. And I think here in Massachusetts, there is a recognition at the state level, which I am uh, grateful to be here now and to be working with uh, both local people and state officials who understand that. And I think often in those, in public housing, 
one of the things that they're trying to address in Boston or that people who are advocating for more public housing in Boston are trying to address is um, the issue of like the no separate door policy where like buildings that need to include some public housing or Section 8 housing put in a separate door for the people who live in that housing. Yes, right? That's so crazy, isn't it? And that's a thing that's been... I think there's a lot of misunderstanding. I mean, I didn't think I would talk that much about housing today. So housing is a spectrum. So there's people who are, um, obviously, the, 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 the solution to homelessness is housing, and some people need housing with services. So there's a variety. So public housing was built as the first step initially after World War II. Uh, and it was meant to be temporary housing, but here we are 70 years later, and it's not temporary. It's the permanent place where people are living, so that requires a different approach. But the idea was those people would pay what they could yeah. in public housing. And then there's housing that has some sort of subsidy, and that subsidy could be in the building of the housing to keep the rents lower, or it can be to the individual Okay, Molly, we're going to give you a voucher, and you can go rent, and Sarah has an apartment. You rent it, you pay a portion, government pay. So there's that type. And then there's um, housing that you have to live in that has some subsidy, but you have to work and pay. And then there's that that's in the market. And then there's ownership. And then there's housing that comes with support services. So the biggest area in support services, well, the two big areas, one is veterans. Nobody in this country should put on a uniform and fight for this country and serve this country and come back and sleep on the street. And many who do serve come back and thrive, but there are those who come back who need supports um, around physical um, injuries they may have sustained uh, that limit their capacity um, in some way or they need assistance or some mental health. And so that's housing that's needed with services. And I was fortunate to work on some house, veterans housing and the amazing look on someone's face when they can close the door and it's their space. And you're not talking about a palace. You're talking about a decent apartment where they can close the door. They have a kitchen and a place for their bed and a place um, to sit and, and, and enjoy whatever it is they enjoy doing, reading or being with friends or watching TV. So I think there's that. And then, of course, um, there are others who need supportive services. And then we just simply need more housing um, for young working people. They can't afford the market rate because they're dealing with student debt. Maybe they got their first job, they had to get a car. Not a brand new car, maybe a secondhand car, and they have a car loan. And then there's this thing called car insurance. <laughs> right? As I remind myself of having two young drivers. You know, so they're putting those together. And so hopefully if we can have apartments in the community that they can rent that aren't at the high end, but they're not subsidized, we need those for working people. And then nobody pays a first-year teacher, a first-year doctor, accountant, construction worker, architect, nurse. It doesn't really matter. In your earlier years, you tend to start at a certain pay scale and grow. And so then you hopefully it, you will get, if you want to buy a home, there will be opportunities or you'll have a different apartment. And I, I just think there's a cycle of that. But there was a really great article I just read. Um, I love on Twitter, people will post interesting articles from magazines and newspapers I don't get. And it was just talking about the fact that this country has more people than we did 30 or 40 years ago, and we haven't kept up. So 
I'm excited to see what is going on in downtown as I learn more about Worcester. And I just today toured one building that's being renovated. And it's going to have a mix of types of apartments. And then obviously there's opportunities. There are condos that have been built and there's new apartments in Kelly Square that I've been looking at. So I think that there is some momentum here in Worcester. And I am... uh, listening and paying attention to what's going on at the chamber. They're doing a study, and I did participate in a forum they had. And for me, the housing's connected to transportation. It's another big issue. People need to move around a community. Uh, Some people have cars. Some people want to use the train. Some people want to use buses, scooters, bicycles. Although I have to say, I love bicycles. I'm a biker. There's a lot of hills in the city. (laughs) So that's been a really new experience for me, right? This is a city of hills. And I don't know how, you might have a lot of uh, market for the uh, power-assisted bicycles. Ah, yes, I think so. Because you got to get up those hills. You, um, when you were working in Rhode Island, had an initiative through LISC that um, was based in community policing. Can you talk a little bit about what community policing is and what the difference is between community policing versus like reactive policing, for instance, and why it was more successful? I'll just talk about what we did. We, um, I was working in community with a couple of the uh, community development corporations. We call them CDCs. They're community-based organizations that often take on the housing, but they take on other community issues in the neighborhood. And we had a new police chief who came to town under um, the new mayor, David Cicilline, who's now a congressman. And He said that he was going to have community police officers, so dividing the city up, and police officers would be attached to a certain area, and they wanted to work with community groups. And I will tell you, it started with an exchange of cell phone numbers. And you think, what is Barbara talking about? But it was a simple act of a a police officer telling a community leader, here's my cell phone. We are, you know, trying to work on some issues in your neighborhood, some crime. And if you see something, I don't want you to call headquarters and wait to get to me. I want you to call me directly. And that executive director of that nonprofit called me and said, you can't believe what just happened. And I'm thinking something really big. And it was a small act. And from there, built a relationship. And I think community policing is just policing that focuses on relationships. This community police officer uh, got very engaged with the organization. He attended their monthly board meetings. I think eventually he went on the board for a couple of years. Uh, They got to know each other. Um, The kids in the neighborhood weren't just kids. They became kids with faces and names and likes and dislikes. And the police officer to them didn't become some unknown or some threat. It became Dean, the guy who comes around, who shoots hoops with us the guy who goes to the new bakery in town from uh, a new immigrant opened a bakery and there was a robbery and he showed up to find out what was going on with someone from the community, from the CDC. And the owner was very happy. And a week later he showed up again. And the guy said, well, that's nice of you to come again. When he showed up the third time, about a month later or something, the bakery owner said, what are you doing? He goes, well, you're in the neighborhood and I'm about the neighborhood, so I'm just checking how's business. I want to get another cup of coffee. It was about relationships. And I think we broke down a lot of barriers on both sides. uh, And it really grew uh, into something much bigger than I ever thought would happen. And I think one of my favorite stories was, um, because it goes back quite a while, though, but post-Katrina, 
also the public housing was in the neighborhood, and then there were apartments in the neighborhood, and the kids in the public housing didn't go over to the places where the other kids were, and the kids in the other apartments never went to the public housing. Crazy. Divides were different. You can lead to gangs and all sorts of bad behavior, but we found out that the public housing authority had a community room that wasn't being used, and uh, the girls in the neighborhood, the teenage girls said, we want our own space, you know. Sometimes our brothers, our boyfriends, our mother asking us to babysit our kid's sister, we just want a space of our own. And we found this space, and all of a sudden we invited all the different girls, and they began to get to know each other. And um, after Katrina, they were working, boys and girls, in the public housing with the neighborhood kids on creating packages to send down to New Orleans and to Baton Rouge. And the police officer came in and he goes, oh, this is great. What are you doing? And she, Monique, the woman who was running, said, oh, it's great. We're doing this program. And um, we're going to send some of the kids next week. And the police officer asked about a particular kid. And she said, no, we only have enough to send four kids. And so that boy can't go. And a week later, the community police officer walked in and said, here's a check. I went back to the community police officers and we all chipped in enough money so you could send this other boy. And that still to this day gives me the chills because it is what we want to believe can happen in a community. But more importantly, that the relationships led to rebuilding of crime sites into housing, into a park, into a bike path. So the work became building your way out of crime, that you can take parts of neighborhoods and communities that are run down or problematic. The police knew exactly where all the crime was going on, and it was an abandoned building. And the CDC is in the real estate business. They got a hold of the building. They tore it down. They replaced it with housing. There was a park that was built in some abandoned factory space. Um, So it wasn't just the relationships. There were actually other results, maybe a little more um, concrete. We've had very similar success in Worcester at the Maine South CDC. What has happened was a community policing effort where they used a curriculum and brought in these groups of kids, these cohorts, to go through it, and then there were relationships that developed with the police force in the neighborhood. Well, I feel bad because I've been here six months, and both the former police chief in Providence and the current have offered to make an introduction to Chief Sergeant here. So, And I haven't taken them up on that yet, but I am ready, and I'm really interested because I hear he has done some of this, and I do know the Maine South group, and thank you for sharing that story with me because I'd like to hear more about it. Yeah. It's like a mirror. Casey Starr and Steve Teasdale are at the forefront over there. and they're Casey just, just had a baby, right? And yeah, we know yeah. Steve. So when I was at, so my introduction to HUD, uh, to Worcester was when I was my uh, three and a half years at HUD, I was out here at the request of Congressman McGovern and some challenges in the city, and I did meet and go see what the Maine South group was doing with Clark because Clark was known nationally to really engage with the community and to come back now four years later, five years later, and have Steve drive me and show me the housing that's been built. Uh, now, of course, the gardening and uh, that Rec is doing yes. over there. So I, it was exciting for me to have seen the early stages and then to see where it is. What a transformation! Right? It's like that's. It's so funny. I think of that sometimes when you like. It's when you see someone and then you don't see them for like. 
five years and you're like, you look so different. And they're like, I look exactly the same. But it's the same thing where it's that jump, right? Of like, you see the seed being planted and then you get to see the end result where like, I think sometimes we take for granted those changes that are made because we kind of just see them as they're happening. Yeah. I mean, to go back earlier, what you said, I, our, our role is to really co- connect donors um, to the issues that they care about. But I think it's also our uh, incumbent upon us to work with donors in a particular area. So if they're interested in housing or homelessness, or they're interested in the arts, or they're interested in health, we can bring them together and show them things that are happening at that community level that they may not be aware of. So our arts work, we work with the big institutions, Ecotarium and the Historical Museum and the Art Museum. They're wonderful, and um, I'm actually enjoying getting to know them and learn more about them, but we're also doing work at the community level with different groups. Um, Crocodile River Music, do I get the name right? You know, when they were honoring Senator Chandler, we marched into City Hall and they were playing, and I know that one of our grants went to support them. That's a community-based music uh, program. So I think we can see both the big picture, but we can also see what is happening at the at the level. And not just in Worcester, obviously we do programming in, in Webster and Dudley and Leicester, you know, in different parts of, of Worcester County. Uh, and so um, I was fortunate. I went out. They were very happy to see me down in Webster at the Boys and Girls Club. Beautiful new facility. Um, and they were surprised I came. I said, well, I happen to have a friend who lives in Webster, so I've been here many times, but it's just 12 miles down the road, and it's part of our area, but it's also, it's not that far away. It's part of who we care about and who people here wanted to learn more about. So I have um, only been here six months. I have so much more to learn. Uh, it's. Uh, I'm looking forward to a little more warmer weather. So. Yes, <laughs> the city really does come alive in the summer. Well, I saw that. I came at the end of the summer and just using the outdoor spaces. Yes, and I, I did want to make sure that we asked you about your presidential appointment. Yes. Oh. Um, how did you obtain a presidential appointment in the Obama administration? That's a pretty remarkable accomplishment. As you mentioned, I work for LISC, which is a fabulous organization with a pretty difficult um, name. <laughs> uh, but LISC works in about 30 or, or 35 locations around the country, and I had moved from Boston to Rhode Island to start it. And I ran it for 20 years. In the course of those 20 years, it was very important to be engaged with our elected officials, just how I'm trying to do here. So there's both at the local level, right, city council people, a mayor, and then there's the state reps and state senators, the governor, lieutenant governor. But there's the federal delegation is critically important. So much of what we do in communities is funded by federal funds. And I got to know our delegation very well. It's Rhode Island. We joke about it. You know, you see the senator when you're shopping at Stop and Shop or um, uh, going to Starbucks. I I will say I just ran into Congressman McGovern about (laughs) 10 minutes before I came here getting coffee. And I was like, oh, hello, superdelegate, you know. And I think that's what makes people feel connected. So Senator Reid, I knew uh, just as he went into Congress, he had been in our state legislature down there. And he um, is one of the, he's our senior senator in Rhode Island, but he was moving up in the ranks of, of the Senate. One of his four major areas that he works on is housing. So we were very much engaged. And when the president was elected, I had been in my job 20 years, it was a pretty long time. And 
I chatted with him, and he recommended that I send him my resume. That that is one of the things the new administration was doing, and and then it came from there that uh, there was a question if I wanted to move to D.C. But my children were little, and I I wasn't ready to make that move. Um, and then I was asked if I would consider this regional position, and uh, it was an honor to serve. What was interesting is my colleague in the environmental world became the regional administrator for EPA. So we got to compare notes, and they're pretty different places, even though they're both federal government. Every agency is a little different. And then I became very good friends with the HHS regional administrator who works here in Worcester now. Now, who is that? Oh, well. Christy Hager, she is now over at um, the the medical school, but she's on loan right now to something in Boston, but she does some internal consulting. Uh, but she had to go all over the region. She probably, we joke, she probably did 20 or 25,000 miles of driving because it's when they were explaining to people what the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, was about. So she really had a big job. And she heard that I had come here, so she reached out. I didn't realize that she was working uh, in Worcester, but now she's on this temporary assignment. But it was um, really thanks to Senator Jack Reed, and I was very grateful for his support. That's awesome. Um, I just want to be clear. The EPA is the Environmental Protection Agency, and the HHS is the um, Department of Health and Human Services. I'm sorry. I do talk in a little bit of lingo. (laughs) No, I do that too. And so then Sarah got really good at being like, Molly, can you explain what you're talking about? (laughs) So now I'm like, it's like a button goes off And HUD is with U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. And one of the things that I really liked was the secretary who went in, Willie, came uh, with a tremendous background in the area, but he also talked about putting the UD back in HUD. But most of the budget does go to housing, but it is about that urban development, that community development, and those pieces that make the housing successful is that it's part of a community. So HUD was also looking at neighborhood parks, looking at if there were, you know, other things in the community that were needed, um, support and funding. So I worked uh, with EPA and others on, they made it, um, they made four new stations on the Indigo line in the Boston and the Metro. And what went on around those stations were housing and commerce. You know, all of a sudden you have transportation, it attracts people. I think about that now here as we're developing, we don't have obviously a subway system, but we have a bus system and trying to figure out, are there things? And but one thing the foundation can do as a civic leader is we could be a convener. We're sort of the neutral territory, the Switzerland. So even if we're um, putting a lot of money or, or no money into an issue, it doesn't really matter. If we can be a civic leader to bring together corporate leaders, government leaders, community leaders, I think of us as a place that can do that around a particular issue. Um, so currently, the Secretary of the of Housing and Urban Development is Ben Carson, whose background is in medicine. And there has been a lot, or not much happening, I guess you could say, within the last couple of years. Um, under the Trump administration, one, some of the things that are going on, according to NBC News, the number of HUD properties cited for unsafe living conditions has increased under his leadership. Um, 830 properties that receive funding from HUD failed inspection. There have been even just like little things where he was in front of 
he was at a hearing and he wasn't familiar with the term REO for real estate owned, which is like a major part of his purview and a major part of his position. Um, do you have any thoughts on his legacy, if any, that you think would come out of, will come out of this? I think that did not work there under this secretary, so it, I, I, I could not comment on, on how that is going. But I think in this country, housing has not elevated to the issue that I think it needs to be. So even in the presidential debates, we're keeps wondering if there's going to be a question on housing. I am excited that many of the candidates actually have very detailed plans addressing the issue. So I think that uh, Dr. Carson has uh, been the manager over a department that has been uh, seen restricted funding, and that is a challenge. Demand is increasing, funding is decreasing. It's just not a high priority in the administration other than on the issue of homelessness. There has been some attention paid there. But one of the challenges, for example, you were talking about public housing, which is just one piece of our housing market, but the backlog of capital needs, those are the needs to fix and repair things that are old, right? So whether you have a house or a car, right, after, you know, three, four years, it needs changes, it needs upgrades, it needs spark plugs, it needs a paint job, uh, the housing is old. The backlog is about $26 billion estimated conservatively, and the whole HUD budget is only just about $46 billion. So there's no way someone would take half of the budget to put into repair. So I think in the Obama years, there were some very creative programs put into place to try and deal with that. I just think when we look at the national budget, housing needs to have a little more sunshine thrown its way and thought about. And for me, housing is also a jobs program, right? Mm -hmm. I just had the opportunity to visit the old courthouse, and I walked through, and I must have seen two dozen people working, and they all have different skill sets. One of them could be an electrician, could be a plumber, could be a drywall person. Uh, they were building stairs. They, you know, there's all sorts of skill sets. So every time we renovate or build new, we're employing people. And I am excited to have visited the Worcester Tech School because I think it's very exciting that this community has a school dedicated to teaching young people who are interested in that about those career paths. I can't even tell you, too, how popular it is among my eighth grade students. They're all applying. It's very, very competitive. And They can't get there fast enough, Sarah, because my plumber <laughs> is nearing 60, and I'm a little worried what happens when he retires. Yeah, but they it's a very, very competitive program right now. And I understand that with some of the new building projects for Doherty High School and South High School, they're going to include some vocational elements to try to fill that need. Uh, and not to mention the fact that their commencement speaker a few years ago was Barack Obama, which yeah. is, you know, pretty impressive. That was yeah, good yeah, for business. But I think the fact that the president came highlighted that this is one opportunity that we can offer in our community, right? I don't know the number of students in the school system, but if there is this group that wants to pursue this, it is so great. Not only that is Worcester offering it, you have a brand new school that looked pretty nice when I went there, and I only saw a little part of it. But um, 
I think when we invest in our school buildings, it says to the young people, you're both teachers, that somebody cares. It's The, the physical will not solve everything, but I've learned because I'm on the real estate side. I worked on childcare facilities. The facility impacts the teachers, their, your ability to engage with your students. There's also obviously programming and well-trained teachers and curriculum, but physical space has a tremendous impact. And so I see that in in a lot of our work um and hopefully i can bring that knowledge and expertise i have to all the other things that the foundation is doing um i haven't had a chance to speak about those but i other than we do, we do have a focus on arts we're doing great work um jonathan cones our, our our program manager and we're working with the bar foundation out of boston and the city and doing the cultural plan and it also is focused on um a creative entrepreneur. So it isn't just what you might think a painter or a musician, which we're doing that too. We have a focus on early childhood and um, really helping children, making sure our grant making focuses to help children arrive ready to learn. I don't think either of you are kindergarten teachers, right? No. No. no but <laughs> a, a child arriving at kindergarten who's had really good supports health supports and as well as educational supports can arrive in a classroom uh, with greater word power, greater understanding of, you know, numbers and and be ready to learn and work with those teachers in whatever ways that the teachers work with them. Uh, So we have decided to look at our grant making and focus around that and uh, what are some of the challenges and what are some of the opportunities. We discussed that a bit at the YWCA, that that particular population tend to be the students who do go to kindergarten who are not kindergarten ready um, and how to kind of change that cycle. You've talked a lot about cycles. And Linda Cavioli had even mentioned the importance of daylight. Getting Mm -hmm. sunlight into their classrooms made a huge difference for these pre-K students. So there's a lot to it, and I I love that you're investing in the future. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, you know, another big area for us, I mean, that is investing in young people before they get to school um, is, is critical. And then the other area we invest in is leadership development, and we were talking about the Young Philanthropy Program, but we also have the Nonprofit Support Center, and we run classes because I think there aren't enough opportunities for the uh, executive director, board members, and staff of our nonprofits to learn what's the latest going on uh, with tax laws and financial management of your organization, fundraising, staff development, um, technology, uh, I'm trying to think of some of the other uh, programs that we're running. We did a whole year-long cohort on fundraising, and all the executive directors who were in it, there were nine of them, said, you know, I came into my organization because I cared about X, children, the environment, housing. I didn't come in because I was skilled in fundraising and financial management, and not only did I learn from the teacher but we created a cohort that worked together so they could learn from each other. I came to an excellent session last year here called So You Want to Be an Executive Director. But it was free to register for, and it, you know, it's something that's certainly in my sights in the future that perhaps I would want to go into the nonprofit world. And it was amazingly We have bankers and lawyers who come to our programs because we also run a program on how volunteering can help you get your career goals you know, so obviously you would like to be a paid executive director, but what a volunteer things can you do while you're doing another job that will help? So I've been at meetings with bankers and lawyers, and they say we we go and we send our colleagues 
Um, so to me, that's our investment in Worcester's future is the youth philanthropy or our high school students. We, we co-lead with the Chamber Leadership Worcester. So we're getting a cohort of mid-career people who then we can say as people are looking for board members, who's out there, who's new, who's got an interest in you know, my organization's issue, whether it's the ecotarium or, you know, uh, the library, the library. <laughs> the reason I'm on the library foundation board, I was in leadership Worcester. I asked one question about the library. And next thing I know, <laughs> I get a phone call. Which well, I want to go see the renovation, Sarah. I know it's gone, undergone this renovation. And I know that um, I've seen another library renovation recently. Libraries are reinventing themselves for the 21st century in really exciting ways. Molly and I are so pumped they're going to have a podcasting studio. Yeah. Excellent. So who? nobody would even thought about that 10 years oh, ago, yeah. much it's less. amazing. Right? Yeah. Or the, the one that I visited recently, they had a special section for, like, toddlers, which is almost like being at a children's museum. Like, they yeah. need space for books and movement. And then there was a sec- separate section for teenagers. I was like, mm-hmm. how smart is that? Teenagers want to hang. They don't have a license. They're not going anywhere far. A library could be a good place if you have a podcasting studio or something. And then seniors. So the different spaces and places, and I think... Libraries are one of the inventions of U.S. philanthropy because they were started by foundations. Uh, And I think, to me, when I think about being in philanthropy, how wonderful a lasting legacy of of U.S. foundations that that was something they started in almost every town you go to, right? Even when I go on vacation, we see the library, you know, down on Cape Cod. There's the library. (laughs) Of course, everybody's going to try to get hooked up on the Internet. But, (laughs) you know, that's so great. I didn't know you were on there, and I I look forward to visiting and seeing the the renovation work. And I don't know if we've spoken about this on our podcast recently, but we raised $4.1 million through the foundation. They're putting a front door on the library, which it didn't previously have, believe it or not. It just had a front. Yes. um, (laughs) Street-friendly. Well, that's about good urban design. Mm -hmm. You know, you you see... uh, What's the, the, there's a mall in downtown Boston, like the Lafayette. It was all like a, a wall and the, <laughs> the mall didn't succeed. And then they wound up later having to, you know, yes. you know it. retool it and go into the walls and make windows. And I mean, as you mentioned too, the biggest project over there is the children's room. We want it to be a destination. And next door, the YW is obviously doing renovations too in their location right downtown. I think for the people that go there, it's accessible. It's right in the middle of everything happening uh, in the city. Uh, it's for me, I mean, I'm in the exploration phase. I know uh, we, we're going to think about how we grow our, um, our impact, how we grow our endowment, uh, but we need to reach out and talk to people. I've been doing a lot of that, so I appreciate being on your show. I just got a card today from someone I had spoke to a group. Um, it was a social club, and they said people had heard about the foundation, but they didn't know some of the things we were doing, like the youth philanthropy, like the nonprofit support center, like our focus on early childhood. So that's my job is to go out and tell it. You know, talking with people like you on a podcast is a great opportunity. I think the one thing that we haven't talked about that I also think adds to the community in so many ways, culturally is one, is the fact that there are so many colleges and universities here. Absolutely. Yeah, and for sure. I've had the opportunity to be on three campuses for different events, and I, it's been a really great exploration. 
I was uh, really excited. I got asked by the president at WPI to come judge the student projects. Uh, they do projects in their junior year all over the world and in Worcester, and um, we see them in their senior year present. And the Worcester one, the Worcester project won the competition this year, and the president said she was trying to remember when the last time the local project won. It was done with Dr. Maddie Castile, who runs health we department, love Maddie, and yes. she's on our board. So I was texting her, why aren't you here to hear this? But I also realized the impact of the foundation because we met a group of juniors about to go on their projects. Moscow, Namibia, it was amazing. And this young man next to me says, I'm at WPI thanks to you. I said, what do you mean? And he has one of our scholarships. So one of the things that we do here, we give out almost 400 scholarships a year and there are current, I was able to tell the president, because I looked it up, there are currently um, 17 students, I believe the number is, at WPI, who have some scholarship from us. And this young man was from Dudley, and, and I went and looked up the whole story. We're going to write about him, because it was a really interesting story of somebody, two people who met in World War II, a husband and wife, wanted to help a student that wanted to study engineering or aeronautics. And of course... WPI's got a lot of that going on, and so that was great. But I've been to Worcester State, and I've you know been at Clark, and I've been at um, QCC, and Holy Cross, and I know at Becker. I mean, it's just amazing. Of course, you know you have Mass Pharmacology and Assumption and Anna Maria, and then um, uh, UMass Medical. So I do think that Worcester has a great tradition in higher education that is not always um, recognized when I talk to people. They'll mention one or two schools, and then when I start to mention them all... Yeah, like it keeps going and going. So I think one of the things that our goal is to help create more opportunity for people, and so obviously people born and raised here, but people who might come from out of town to go to school here, maybe there's opportunities for them to stay and be in the community. I spoke to a real estate agent this week for an article for Mass Live, and he was saying that he's seeing us retain so many more college students than we ever have before. And I think it amounts to a population of 30,000 students in the city. Yeah, so it's a a big win for us to keep some of them. Right. I think um, currently affordability is um, a factor. Uh, Boston is expensive. New York is more expensive. Mm -hmm. Uh, and if you can find the right opportunity here, that's why I say in our creative arts work may be in creative entrepreneurs, people who are using some of those tech skills mm-hmm. to do some different types of um, or, uh, businesses. So um, I'm, I'm excited about it. I think that the foundation has a lot of expertise to help people to connect philanthropists with different opportunities here and to shape the community in ways that expand opportunity for more people. Well, speaking of creative entrepreneurship, we would like to thank Worcester Arts Council for making this episode possible. And thank you so much for having us at the Greater Worcester Community Foundation offices in downtown Worcester. Hashtag WAC funded. Yeah, that's that's right. Hashtag Worcester Arts Council funded. That's right. I like it. It's catchy. I have been Sarah. I have been Molly. And this is Pop It.